purposes will be established, that he will accomplish all of his good pleasure. He says there, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. He also says, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. So again, God here, He's declaring the absolute certainty we can have that He is God alone. There's no other controlling force, no other controlling power to which we are subject, and that He will do what He's always done. Because what He has always done is what He will always do. He is in control. And He's moving us toward this day when He will bring His salvation ultimately, finally, completely. He's told us that He's declared the end from the beginning. He's also told us what He intends to do. And sometimes He even tells us when He intends to do it. And one of the better examples of that very thing, at least in my opinion, comes from the book of Daniel. In Daniel, we find the 70 weeks prophecy. So turn with me this morning to Daniel chapter 9. We'll be in verses 24 through 27. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And if you are able, please stand as I read the very word of God. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined." And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the raw wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray this morning. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. Lord, your word is true and it is everlasting. The flower fades, the grass withers away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Father, sanctify us in Your truth, for Your Word is truth. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So that's crystal clear, right? What we've, we've just looked at there. Daniel begins chapter 9. This, this prophecy by telling us that it's the first year in the reign of Darius and that he's doing Bible study. Daniel tells us that he's reading the book of Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah 29.10, which says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been complete for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word with you to bring you back to this place. And then in verse 14 of Jeremiah 29, God says that He will restore them back to the place from where they were exiled. That's the land of Israel. And so Daniel's study of God 
leads him to realize that God's plan is about to be accomplished. And so Daniel responds to this realization by praying. He prays this prayer of repentance. He seeks the Lord's forgiveness. And then in verse 17 of Daniel 9, he asks that God's face would shine on His desolate sanctuary. That He would turn His attention towards Israel, the land, the temple, and the people. And take action. Right? Look at verse 15. O Lord, hear! O Lord, forgive! O Lord, listen and take action for Your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because Your city and Your people are called by Your name. And while Daniel is praying, God responds. He sends the angel Gabriel to bring Daniel insight and understanding. Look at verses 22 and 23. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. As soon as Daniel begins praying, God sends the angel Gabriel to give Daniel understanding. And the 70-week prophecy is revealed. Daniel is told about the future. God is revealing, excuse me, God is revealing his plan to Daniel. So Gabriel des- describes this 70 prophetic weeks, right? 70 periods of seven years or 490 years total as God's timetable. Now there are very, very diverse and, and different views on the 70 weeks prophecy. And, and there's not a lot of agreement with, with those views. The New American Commentary says this, these are four of the most controversial verses in the Bible. As I said, there are several views on these 70 weeks. Two main themes emerge. And there are two main views within those two themes. One of those themes says that these 70 weeks, these periods of years, are purely symbolic periods of time. They're they're not literal years. And one of those symbolic views sees this period of time ending somewhere before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The other sees this period of time extending until the coming of Jesus, the second coming. Uh, This view holds that the events listed in verses 26 and 27 happen in the last seven years or that last week of Daniel's prophecy. And it also maintains that when Messiah is said to be cut off, doesn't necessarily mean that he's put to death. It just means he's a dead issue. That nobody really cares about Messiah in in that. It sees Jerusalem and the church as more spiritual terms than than literal terms. And, And I think there are problems with both of these views. Now understand, I've given a very simplistic summary of what those views are, but there are problems. Uh, Too many, way too many for our time this morning, but I'll I'll give a couple of the main ones. First, the sevens really are best interpreted as being literal periods of years. That this 70 weeks is a literal period of of those those years. Um, And it's not an indefinite period of time. Uh, the, The first view of these symbolic years says that that some of the sevens are actually 20 years in length and others are only six years 
in length. And again, that a seven is just symbolic of any number of years is, is really problematic. And there are certainly problems with seeing Jerusalem as anything other than a literal city to be rebuilt. And, and they're, just, they're just too subjective. They seem to force events to fit their, their presuppositions. And then the other two uh, views of the theme that does hold that these are literal years, uh, one of those, again, uh, uses Jeremiah 25.1 and then verse 11 as the marker of the beginning of these 70 weeks. That is, um, well, this is what Jeremiah says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then verse 11 says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that first literal year view sees this beginning as that 70 year period. Um, according to this view, again, when, when Jeremiah gets this word, 490 years later will be the conclusion of that. From that timing, that brings us to the story of Hanukkah. Right? It's, it's the end of the persecution under Antiochus. Whether it's the rededication of the, the temple or his death, that's about the timing that we get from what Jeremiah says. That view doesn't really satisfy the requirements of the text. It, there's a 67-year deficit in that time period. It's only a 423-year period instead of a 490-year period. Jeremiah's prophecy also has no mention of Jerusalem being rebuilt. So I don't think this is a great candidate for that beginning. The second view of this literal year begins with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And there are really two good decrees for us to look at. The first is, is made by Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Second possibility is a decree given by Artaxerxes, given to us in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Now, Cyrus's decree is made in 538 BC, and I know a lot of numbers this morning, right? Hold on. We'll get there. Right? The decree of Artaxerxes is made 445, 444 BC. So the first group of sevens ends with the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's 49 years. And then from Cyrus's decree, if we add the, the 62 years, or I'm sorry, those 49 years, it gets us to 409 BC. And then from the decree of Artaxerxes, we're roughly 396, 397 BC. Uh, so the first sevens, again, 49 years, is then followed by 62 sevens, 434 years. From both of those decrees, 434 years brings us right to the time of Christ. Two different options. Two different options. Right? The, the, the baptism of Jesus or the day which we celebrate today. That is Palm Sunday. And so after this, this period, there seems to be a stall because of the people's rejection of their Messiah. And that stall is where we find ourselves today. The sevens will resume at some point. And as Daniel, Gabriel tells Daniel, that that will begin with this firm covenant of the many for one week. This covenant is made by a figure known as the Antichrist. He makes this covenant with the people of Israel, with the nation of Israel. And then that final seven-week period, seven years, will culminate when Messiah returns 
and establishes his kingdom on earth, well, he will reign for a thousand years from David's throne. Now, I'll tell you, I fall more in line with this last view. These are literal years. There will be a literal earthly kingdom. Messiah, Messiah will reign and rule from a literal city of Jerusalem for a literal 1,000 years. That period of time is often referred to as the Messianic era. And after such a time, Satan, who's been bound for these 1,000 years, that's Revelation 22, chapter 20, verse 2, he'll be released. And this great final battle will ensue. And evil and death and all of those things will finally and completely be destroyed. And then the great white throne, judgment of God, comes. This final judgment takes place. The book of life is opened. And as Revelation 20.15 tells us, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake. of. But for those whose names are found, a new heaven, a new earth, a new holy city, a new Jerusalem comes down from God and we will dwell with Him. And He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because Jesus makes all things new. Amen? Amen. So back to Daniel's prophecy. Remember this view, there's two possibilities regarding what gets this 70 weeks started. One is that decree by Cyrus, 538 B.C. The other is the one by Artaxerxes, 445 B.C. So again, if we follow the time from Cyrus's decree, 49 years, the first seven weeks, 409 BC, and then another 62 sevens, 434 years, that brings us roughly to the time of Jesus' baptism. Could very well be, right, that the issuing of the decree to Messiah the Prince would end at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That makes perfect sense to me. Right? It, it certainly could be so. I would never say that that's not possible. I will say that it's more unlikely. I think there's a much better day, much better date, that in my opinion and, and that of many others works much better. So that is working from the decree of Artaxerxes, 445 B.C. We can with some strong certainty know that that decree was issued around the 14th of March in 445 B.C a date corresponding to the first of Nisan in the Jewish year 3316. Uh, just for your edification, we're currently in the 5782 according to the Jewish years. So if we add 483 years to that period of time, we come to the 14th of March, 445. If we, if we add years of that to that, we come then to April 6th of 32 A.D. Right? I don't think I said that very clearly. From the decree on 14th of March, 445, we add this 483-year period, we come to April 6, 32 A.D. Now, April 6, 32 A.D. just happens to be the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Now, before going any further, I need to say there's considerable debate as to whether this is the actual date. And I'm not hung up on whether it is or whether it isn't. Right, whether, whether we use the prophetic year of 360 days 
or if we use the Julian year of 365.242 days, either way, if we even use the Julian year, we come to March 28, 33 AD, which just happens to be the 10th day of the month of Nisan. So either way, again, I'm not so hung up on, on the actual date. There's just too many variables. But the 10th day of the month of Nisan is the day. I believe that. So what, right? What's so, what's so special about this day? Well, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. This month is Nisan. Shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first of the month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So this month, again, is the month of Nisan, and the tenth day of the month is Lamb Selection Day. They're preparing to celebrate the Passover. And so on the tenth day of the month of Nisan, they would select the lamb. They would bring it into their home and they would observe it for four days to make sure that it was truly a spotless, unblemished lamb. It was the day upon which that lamb for the sacrifice was selected. And we know from John's Gospel that Jesus entered Jerusalem what we know is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, on the 10th of Nisan, which was Lamb Selection Day. So from the decree of Artaxerxes to 10 Nisan, 32 A.D., there are exactly 173,880 days. If you divide that by a 360-year prophetic year, you get precisely 400 in 83 years, just as Gabriel told Daniel would be the time to elapse. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And there we read When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately He will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And He sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of Him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when He had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So it should be obvious that there is more happening here than just Lamb Selection Day. Yes, Jesus is absolutely establishing in this symbolic way that He is their Passover Lamb. That He will purchase their freedom from death and from bondage. Someone had to die that night in Egypt. It was either the firstborn of every family or the Lamb would die in their place. So Jesus is asking them if, he, if they will choose Him as their substitute. 
as that lamb that would die in their place. But there's more here, so much more. This is really a big moment in the story of Jesus' life. This is a culmination point that we've been headed towards ever since the angels first appeared to the shepherds, bringing them good news of great joy. They said, For unto you this night a Savior is born, who is Messiah Adonai. Messiah the Lord. Messiah God. Glory to God in the highest. We understand, since that very clear, very clear proclamation, Jesus Himself has been very careful to not proclaim Himself Messiah. Right? He's even warned His disciples not to say anything. He warns people that He heals, don't tell anyone. He even warns the demons to shut their mouths and, and to not say anything about His being Messiah. But here in these verses, Jesus is allowing the very claims that He has worked so hard to keep quiet. It gets to the point that when some of the Pharisees in the crowd hear what they're saying, they said, Master, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if they're quiet, the very stones will cry out. So, so why? Why are things different on this day? Right? What were they saying? They're saying, Baruch HaMalech B'Shem Adonai, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He's Jesus is allowing them to do this. He's entering Jerusalem publicly in this fanfare and acclamation. They're proclaiming Him to be King. They're claiming Him to be Messiah, the Prince. Why again? Why this day? Why does everything change now? Because Gabriel told Daniel that this would be the very day that Messiah, the Prince, would come. Daniel 9.25, 483 years to the day that Artaxerxes issued his decree to rebuild Jerusalem. In Matthew, in, in what we just read, he alludes to another prophecy which was fulfilled by this event. Matthew 21, 4-5, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This prophecy is from Zechariah 9.9. Almost identical. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was the day for Messiah the Prince to come. The Jewish people were expectantly awaiting their Messiah to come. The text could show, and I think it does, that there were crowds of people that were waiting for Him. The Anointed One, their Messiah. And as Jesus approaches the city, they're laying their coats in the road and palm branches. Now Mark speaks specifically about the crowd of the disciples. But the other three Gospels just mention the crowds. And John identifies them as the large crowd who had come to the feast. Many of these people knew the prophecies. They knew the text. And those who were looking for the consolation of Israel could calculate the time much more accurately than we can. And they were there to greet their Messiah. 
They were there to welcome their king into Jerusalem. They knew that he would be coming gentle, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, one upon which no one has ever ridden. Which is a miracle in and of itself, is it not? I hear that donkeys are even harder to break than horses. And so the fact that Jesus is able to ride on this unbroken donkey is further evidence of who He is. This is a miracle. And I think this understanding also informs why the foal's owner was so willing to let it go. Right? The Lord has need of them. The kurios has need of them. Kurios is a word that the Septuagint... The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Septuagint uses kurios to translate Adonai or Yahweh. Why are you untying the colt? Because Adonai, Yahweh, Messiah the Prince has need of it. Zechariah 9.9 Take it! Messiah is coming! Now, I also believe this is why they're saying, Hoshiana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 118. Psalms 113 through 118 are the pilgrimage psalms. They're known as the Great Hallel. They're sung during the three pilgrimage festivals. The Jewish people are commanded to come to Jerusalem three times a year Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so as the travelers are approaching Jerusalem from the east, they would begin to hear the Levites in the temple complex singing these psalms. The Levites would line both sides of the temple courts. One side would take the blood from the sacrificed animal and pass it to the altar. The other side would then pass the bowl back to the place of sacrifice. And as they did, they would sing. One side would sing and the other side would, would respond in song. So imagine... Imagine approaching the holy city of Jerusalem, the place where God dwelt with His people within His temple. And as you approached, you could hear the Levites' voices ringing out. One side would sing, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the other side would respond, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And it would continue, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O oh Lord, do save, we beseech You. O oh Lord, beseech You, send prosperity. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed You from the house of the Lord. That's Psalms 118.22-26. The crowds are welcoming Jesus with these accolades, proclaiming Him King. The Levites are singing from the temple about the coming King. It says again, those who went in front of Him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming Kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Luke writes, as soon as He was approaching near the descent, again, this loud acclamation, they're praising Him for the miracles that have been seen. And then they say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Now the psalm says blessed is the One who comes in the name of the Lord. Not blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But the Master's disciples throw caution to the wind here. And they declare, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Say to the daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your King is coming to you. They're proclaiming Him King. And so Jesus descends the Mount of Olives and He approaches the city with all of this acclamation appropriate for the returning King. They're laying their coats out. They're laying palm branches out. And, and we read about how this was done for Jehu when he was proclaimed king. 2 Kings 9.13 They're cutting branches. And John tells us that they're cutting branches from palm trees. Again, why? Right Now some use this very statement to say that the Gospel writers are inaccurate. They don't know what they're talking about. Because the palm branch is more identified with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they use this to say you can't trust what these Gospel writers are saying. They're confused. right? And, and it does tell us in Tabernacles that we're to cut branches and, and to rejoice before God. But there's no confusion here. There's no error to this. The, the Talmud, which is the central text of Judaism, it specifically mentions that when the, the Hallel is sung, that it is to be accompanied by the waving of palm branches. And so there's no reason to assume that they're confused. Alfred Edersheim writes in the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. says the waving of palm branches was the welcome of visitors or kings and not distinctive of the festival of tabernacles. Such were and even now are common demonstrations in the East to welcome a king, a conqueror, or a deliverer. They are welcoming their king. Messiah the Prince. However, in Luke 19.41, we read this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep? The entire city has turned out to welcome him. As Jerusalem comes into view, Jesus could see the city in the height of its glory. Breathtaking. The perfection of beauty. Joy to all the earth. A city of destiny. The walls of the Temple Mount rise up from the valley of, of the Kidron. They could see the, the renovated temple gleaming and glistening gold and silver and bronze. It was, it was said to even rival the temples of Rome. Right? This, this limestone, polished marble, all of it just overwhelming. And then you have all of the, the expectation and the joy of the festival and the people are proclaiming Him King. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus weeps over the city. He cried over that city, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What are the things which make for peace? It's the Gospel message of repent and believe. Matthew 4.17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.14 and 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus sees this vision of the destruction of the city and the temple. He says in Luke 19, 43-44, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. They will surround you, hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground. You and your children within you. 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So Jesus links their inability to see these things which make for peace. Their inability to recognize the time of their visitation. And He laments. They're going to destroy you. They're going to level you. You and your children within you. And the, the Roman siege ended with this ruthless, horrible slaughter. Thousands were killed. And those who survived, those very few who survived, were taken into slavery. And after that siege, the Romans deliberately dismantled and toppled the entire city. They left nothing standing on the Temple Mount just as Jesus had said. And Jesus said this would happen because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And certainly a part of that is recognizing who He is and what He's come to do. That He is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But, but it's not just that. Jesus is referring to other prophecies in Jeremiah that calls and, and predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. The term time of your visitation is, is frequent in His prophecies. Jesus lamented because they didn't understand that God's judgment was upon them. And, and if they had only understood that His judgment was coming, perhaps they would have heeded His call to repent and believe and to escape that judgment. Because those who did recognize who He was and what He came to do, they'd be saved from that. Not that they would survive. Many of them were slaughtered with everyone else. But for those who had accepted who He was and what He did, they would be ushered into eternity in the presence of their God because they recognized the judgment was coming they heeded the call of the Messiah and they placed their trust in what He's done. That's the idea behind God visiting. No predetermined outcome in relation to the visitation. The outcome depends upon the response, the condition of those who are visited. Those who are prepared and ready for this visitation have a positive outcome. Those who are unprepared, not ready for His visitation, are subject to the punishment that follows. Now, Peter, in his great Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people come to faith, uses this same pending destruction to call the people to repentance. In that sermon, Peter quotes from the book of Joel. He quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But he stops halfway through that last verse. He stops when he says, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The rest of the verse says, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. They knew the text. They understood Peter's warning. When he said those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved, they went to this verse in Jeremiah about this pending destruction. And so then Peter offers many proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he says very definitively too. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And at that statement, we are told the crowd is cut to the heart. And they said, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response was, Repent 
each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus sees the destruction of the city and the temple as a result of their rebellion and their disbelief. Your enemies will hem you in. There will be nothing left. And you and your children will be destroyed within the city because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And just 40 years later, the Romans descend on the city. They lay siege. Thousands are slaughtered. And for many, their disbelief and rejection of the Messiah sealed their fate. However, for those who repented and believed, even though they may have been among those who were slaughtered, because they called on the name of the Lord, they were saved. And even though they died, they will never die. It's another time of visitation. We don't know when this visitation will occur. Now, I believe that we are in the last days. I believe our time is short. Does that mean next year? Does that mean 20 years from now? Does it mean 200 years from now? I don't know. But what I do know, without a doubt, is that we are one day closer than we were yesterday. And with this visitation, just as it was when Jesus lamented over the destruction of Jerusalem and Peter warned of this pending calamity, there will be judgment. There will be punishment for those that have rejected the Messiah. Only those who have repented and believed will escape the coming judgment with this visitation. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now the while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom! Come out to meet Him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with Him to the wedding feast, and the door was Later, the other virgins came, also came, also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Be on the alert. Right? We're not guaranteed another minute of life. There is no guarantee. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. If you've not recognized your sin, if you don't understand that you've rebelled against God, understand this. The wages of sin is death. So understand this also, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sinned. We have all missed that mark. We're deserving of death. 
And death will absolutely come to every one of us. There is good news, however. Even though all have sinned, and even though the wages of sin is death, the free of God is eternal life in Messiah Jesus, our Lord. Jesus came to offer His life as a ransom for you. He paid your debt. He paid the penalty to redeem you from the penalty of your sin, which is death. Again, someone has to die to pay the penalty of our sin. God is perfectly just and His justice will be satisfied. That is inescapable. Someone's going to pay that debt. That someone who dies will either be you or you can accept God's free gift given to you in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Just a few days after the events of the triumphal entry, Jesus would celebrate a Passover with His disciples. And during that celebration, He would take a cup, the third cup of four that are drunk that, during that festival. It's the cup that's known as the cup of redemption. It's the cup that represents the third of the four I wills from Exodus 6.6. 6. God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. It's the cup of redemption. It's the cup that Israel has remembered for well over 3,500 years. Their redemption from slavery and bondage. This cup that Jesus used is a cup that has always represented the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that was shed on their behalf. The blood that purchased their freedom. And it was with this cup that the text tells us. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 22.19 says, And when He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. The unleavened bread, the matzah, represents Jesus' body offered as the sacrifice that pays the price for our sin. By eating the bread, we recognize that He is our substitute. So taking the cup and eating the bread at its essence is a profession of our faith in that atonement. And therefore, what we are about to do should only be observed by those who have made that profession of faith in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on their behalf. On Palm Sunday, He proclaimed Himself to be King, to be Messiah, the One who would redeem all of mankind. Just as that first Passover, someone had to die to pay for redemption. Someone has to die to pay the price for our sin. And Jesus has done just that. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the lintel and the posts of the door of that house, and it saved them from death, and it purchased their freedom, so too does the blood of Jesus apply to the doorway of our lives, which is our hearts. Save us ultimately and finally from death and it purchases our freedom for eternity. So will you today accept this gift, this free gift of God given on your behalf? Will you accept the substitute that God has provided that has paid the price for your sin? Will you do this today? And, and be able to join with us as we do this in remembrance of Him.
So before we participate in this ordinance, I'm going to give you just a few minutes of of personal reflection, of introspection, because Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you have not made this decision, if you've not trusted in Christ, His finished work on your behalf, make that decision now. Do not delay. There is no time. And if you'll make that decision, then you can joyfully receive these elements and proclaim your faith and trust in the Messiah. So let's take just